Revelation 4 and 5. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. 
So in my opinion, airports are some of the most stressful places on earth. I don't know if you feel the same way, but for me, it's always nuts. Planes and cars and people and luggage moving all over the place, going in different directions, sirens and bells and announcements sounding off all the time. Lights flashing, people running, kids screaming. Um, Sometimes, maybe, that can be a metaphor for our lives. You ever feel like your life is an airport? (laughs) Stuff going all over the place. You feel out of control. You feel like you have no perspective. You feel like if you can just make it through the day or the week or the month, that will be a huge win. I know that sometimes I feel like that, and I suspect that you feel like that as well. I've never been in an airport control tower, but from what I hear, if you go up into the control tower of an airport, your perspective shifts, especially out on the tarmac with all the planes moving about. You can begin to see a sense of order. You can begin to see a sense of direction. You can begin to understand, perhaps, the bigger picture about what is going on, the chaos diminishes as your perspective is changed. In this vision of the Apostle John in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 that Jay just read for us, what we get is a glimpse into the control tower of the universe. We get a glimpse into the heavenly throne room of God. He gives us, God gives us a view of his vantage point so that we can see that even though our life oftentimes seems chaotic, crazy, and unpredictable, God is in control. He is on the throne. That's the main thing that I want us for a couple of minutes to consider together this morning. We've been in Revelation now for a couple of weeks. Last time, we looked at chapters 2 and 3, which are Jesus' seven letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor that the book was originally addressed to. And we saw there that Jesus calls his church to faithfulness to him. To faithfulness to him in the midst of a hostile and confusing world. And now, in these next two chapters, 4 and 5... We see building on that, that the Holy Spirit helps us to believe and know that even in a hostile and confusing world, God is still on his throne. And that, therefore, enables us, if we're followers of Jesus, to seek and pursue faithfulness. You know, these might be the most important chapters in the entire book of Revelation. All of the visions that are confusing and weird and strange that we're going to get to really, in a sense, flow out of this primary cumulative vision of God's throne room. Every other vision is dependent upon this one. And I want you to know just at the outset that this is not necessarily a vision of the future. This is a vision of the heavenly present, rather. If you'll notice what the Spirit says, or what Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 1, to John, come up here. That sort of language implies that we're getting a heavenly perspective from heaven about what's going on now on earth in the last days, in the days between Jesus' first and second coming. And what John hears and sees, and what we are intended to hear and see, is again that the Lord God is still the Lord God. Jesus, as we've already seen in this great book, is the king. Jesus is on his throne. Jesus, sovereignly and wisely, is in control of all things. And therefore, we need not fear. You know, the thing that should encourage us about this 
part of Revelation in particular, is that it gives us a just un- unbelievably glorious, indescribably beautiful vision of what and who God is. And you know what? At the end of the day, Revelation, like every other book of the Bible, is ultimately about God. Revelation is God's own self-disclosure to a fallen and broken and needy world. And interestingly enough, the better we see God for who he is, the more stabilized and centered our own lives feel in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of pain. And that's really the good news for us this morning. So here's what I want to do. I want to summarize the chapter, these really two chapters, with this main idea, and then we'll break it down as we walk through the story together. So here's the main idea. God is the center of this universe, and God is worthy of our worship. Okay, so what we're going to do is break that sentence into two parts. First, we're going to see that God is the center of the universe. And second, God is worthy of our worship. You ready? Okay, because even if you're not, we're going. So catch up. Let's go. So first, God is the center of the universe. Now, the main image of this vision that John sees is the image of what? Did anybody catch it? A throne. A throne. So if if you're drawing, which we've encouraged you to do, especially you kids, draw a throne. That's what you need to see. That's what you need to get. Um, That's mentioned 17 times in these two chapters, the word throne. The throne is the center of John's heavenly cosmology. And everything else that we see in these chapters is oriented around the throne. And that gives us, right at the very beginning, a simple and profound truth. Here's what it's picturing. Here's what that image is symbolizing for us. God is the center of the universe. God is in control. Listen, God is the king. God is sovereign. God rules The universe at every waking moment, and in every sleeping moment for that matter, revolves around God. This universe does not revolve around me. This universe does not revolve around you. This universe does not revolve around the things that we deem most important in our lives, around the things that we're most passionate about, around our latest work initiative. It doesn't revolve around me trying to plan a church with you. The universe revolves around God. God is the centerpiece. God is the stabilizing factor. That's actually pictorially presented here in the vision. If you look carefully, especially at chapter 4, you'll see that the configuration of God's throne room is all centered around the throne. And like ancient Near Eastern throne rooms often were, it's a circular room. You'll notice that the word around was used a number of times, especially in chapter 4. And all the other beings in the vision find their significance only in their various placements around that central throne of God. So everything else John sees is defined by its central relationship to the throne. So above all else, perhaps, in chapter 4, the vision teaches that all things All creation exists in reference to God. God is the center, and everything else is peripheral. Everything else flows from his self-existent glory and life. Let's just look in a little more detail at chapter 4 briefly. We see in verse 4, 24 elders are around the throne in 24 smaller thrones forming a circle. Now these elders are probably angels. We're not certain. They might be saints that have passed into glory, but they're probably angels, and the symbols of the creatures 
or excuse me, the, the symbols of the, num- the number 24 represents probably the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. 12 plus 12 equals, I had to look this up, 24. 12 times 2, 24. And 12 in Revelation, along with the number 7, by the way, is a number of completion or wholeness. So the 24 elders around the throne ultimately represent the entire people of God. Old Testament and New Testament. And what are they doing? If you look, you'll see that they are, verse 8, praising God. They are doing that for which they were created. And just outside this circle of the 24 elders, we read in verses 6 through 9 about four living creatures. Now, this is kind of weird. It's very common apocalyptic literature, but it's very weird to us. We read that, well, they're probably outside the circle of the elders, but it's not super clear. And these creatures that John describes are very clearly coming from a part of the Old Testament. In particular, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 1. He had a very similar vision when God called him to prophetic ministry. And if you go back and read Ezekiel 1, you don't need to do that now. You can do it later. You'll see that in Ezekiel 1, each of the four creatures has all four of these faces. They're the same four faces. But here in Revelation, each creature only has one face. And that's often what we see, by the way, just as a brief side note. John sort of takes some artistic liberty with the Old Testament images that he's making use of. It's sort of like when a book is made into a film. Um, Of course, most gloriously, The Lord of the Rings is an example of this. And, you know, Peter Jackson took some artistic liberty, some good, some, you know, not ideal. But he's giving his own spin, his own take on the source material. That's kind of what John does very regularly in these visions that he describes, and that's what we see here. So what are these creatures all about? Well, no one really totally knows for sure, but almost, well, most likely, the creatures represent all of animate creation. They represent all living things. There's the lion, there's the ox, there's the man, there's the eagle, there's the beast, the king of the, of the plains, right? There's the king of the air, there's man, the king of the world, made in God's creation, And so the point is that the whole church is praising God, represented in the 24 elders. And then all of animate creation is praising God. They are doing that for which they were created. And then if you move into chapter 5, you'll see in verse 11 that outside of those inner circles, there's an outer circle where we read about myriad upon myriad of angels and archangels doing what? praising God, verse 12, with that unbelievable song about the worthiness of Jesus. And then finally in verse 13, we see every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And guess what? They're praising God with all that is in them. That's the most expansive circle, right? It encompasses everything. And the point is that everything is rendering to God the worship that he deserves. Everything in the universe, man, beast, angel, revolves around him in a constant cacophony of worship. God is the center, you see. He is the pulsing life of all that is. All flows from him and through him. And to him, as the Apostle Paul tells us at the end of Romans chapter 11. The real center of the universe is God. The universe revolves around God. The universe exists for God's own pleasure. Now let me ask you, what is the real center of your universe? Uh, 
what does your life revolve around? And let me tell you something. Here's why that question matters for you practically. This is not pie-in-the-sky preacherly theology. That question matters because when you center your universe around the wrong thing or person, your center will eventually collapse like a black hole. Because the only thing, the only being in the universe that can bear the weight of being infinitely and ultimately central is the creator, living, eternal, and omniscient God. And so when you begin to center your life on something other than him, what happens is it works destruction in your life and, frankly, in the lives of those around you. Now, there's infinite examples that we can give of that. You know, I, always, I love that movie, The Matrix. Some of you think, you're a lunatic, Luke. That's Lord of the Rings and The Matrix already in the first you know, 12 minutes of the sermon. I don't care. That's who I am, so live with it. Um, so I love The Matrix, and I love it when um, Lawrence Fishburne's character says to Neo, welcome to the, the realm of the real. It's kind of like, this is the really real. And, and what you need to hear is, God is the really real. And when you fail to center your life, your priorities, and your world around God, you are living in, in some sense, a false reality. Let me just give one example. Let's say that you center your life around success. I know that's a temptation of mine. And typically, that, you know, that can look, in a, that can show itself in a variety of ways, but usually that has to do with some sort of career field thing for men. And let's say that you're centering your life on career success or vocational success and glory. I want you to hear that the center will not hold. It's going to collapse like a black hole. You know, think about that. Why are some of the most famous and successful people in the world utterly miserable? Remember when the stock market crashed back in 2007, 2008, and you've got all these billionaires that were worth $3 billion and now they're only worth $1 billion, and they're jumping off of the top of buildings in Manhattan. It's because they've centered their universe on the wrong object. I recently read a book. Um, it's an autobiography by Andre Agassi. He was a he still is very famous. He was a tennis player who kind of peaked in the mid to late 90s. And uh, it's a really interesting book, uh, mainly for this reason. Andre Agassi's entire life, from the time he was like five years old, was devoted to being the best tennis player in the world. His dad was a lunatic, like most professional athletes in a lot of ways, and made him hit like 10,000 tennis balls a day from the time he was five. I mean, it was crazy stuff. It also helps that he had elite athletic ability. Um, but Andre Oxy tells about, you know, his story and how he became the number one or number two tennis player in the world. He won multiple majors. He had millions of dollars. He's married to a beautiful actress. And the running refrain of the book is that his life was absolutely miserable. He hated his life. He wanted to get out of his own skin deeply. And at one point in the book, he writes this. He says, when you chase perfection... When you make perfection the ultimate goal, do you know what you're doing? You're chasing something that doesn't exist. You're making everyone around you miserable. You're making yourself miserable. I think that is a beautiful way to describe what John is trying to communicate in John in Revelation 4. The only center that will hold in your life is God. The only way you can experience the flourishing and the renewal that Christianity offers in a unique way is when God is more and more what your universe revolves around. God is the center. Okay? That's the first thing we see. 
It's clear in this remarkable vision. But the main thing to know about this God at the center of the universe is that he is worthy of our worship. So let's look at that secondly. First, we saw God is the center of the universe. Secondly, the God at the center is worthy of our worship. Everything in these two chapters is painting that picture for us, right? This vision is a crescendo of constant worship. God is on the throne in the beauty of light and glory. We see that early in chapter 4. And everyone around him is fully engaged in never-ceasing adoration. So let me ask two questions for us. The one first is brief. The second is a little more extended. First, what is worship? What is worship? You know, whether you're a Christian or not, or not, you can be an atheist. It doesn't matter your faith background. We all are familiar with that word, the word worship. So what does it really mean? It actually derives from an older English word. And the older English word was the word worth-ship, which gives us a pretty clear clue as to the meaning of the word. What is worship? Worship is the act of ascribing worth to someone or something. Worship is placing value, importance, prominence, significance upon someone or something. And this is really, really important for you to hear this morning. We all worship. You may have been a Christian for 70 years. You may become a Christian yesterday. You may not know if you're a Christian or not. You might know you're not a Christian. The point is, all of you are worshiping. The question is, are you worshiping the right object or person? You know, how do you know what you're worshiping? Well, one way you can ask, one way you can discern that is by asking yourself, what can I not live without? And and when you think about our world, in a sense, all of our world is filled with worship all the time. There's a philosopher named Jamie Smith who teaches at a school in Michigan, and he's written a couple of really wonderful books about this. And the first one is called Desiring the Kingdom. And he opens that book by describing a modern 21st century American shopping mall. And he says, imagine, you know, that you, you're from 5,000 years into the future and you want to discover this, what this ancient society was like. And so you get transported back into the past and you walk through Rolling Oaks Mall, right, in northeast San Antonio. What are you going to learn and discern about the people of that era? And what Smith says is that a mall is a liturgical space. It's a space of worship. What is front and center in a mall? Beauty, external beauty, stuff, and then getting more of that stuff, money, valor, success, glory. All of that is screaming to you as you walk through a mall when you have those little, by the way, when do those little things show up in the middle of the walkway of malls, like the cell phone places or whatever, where they really, really work hard, they'll like cut you off or trip you to get you to stop and When I was growing up, those didn't. But anyway, that's another part of the point. Malls are huge centers of worship. Think about college football games. This one's a little closer to home for me. What is an Aggie game if not a meeting of 100,000 people going through a liturgy of worship together? You're worshiping a really bad god, by the way, Aggie football. Sorry, Baylor football's bad, too. Um, But, you know, that's what it is. You know, I'm not saying you should never go to an Aggie football game, although that's probably true, but that's another sermon. What I'm saying is that, you know, all the yells, all of the cheering, it's all, it's a worship event. You're ascribing importance and value and worth to what you're seeing on the field. All of our life is filled with this stuff, guys. We're always worshiping. 
The question is, what is it that you're worshiping? Is what you are worshiping worthy of the praise and meaning and importance that you heap upon it? Are you worshiping the right object? Revelation says the only right object is God. The only object worthy of ultimate worship is the ultimate God. And so let's ask the second question. Why? Why is God worthy of worship? And the vision tells us. The vision gives us two reasons distinctly seen in chapters 4 and 5. The first reason God is worthy of worship, chapter 4, is because he is the creator. Look at verse 411. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you, what? Created. You created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. So God is the creator. God made everything that is not God. Everything that is not God is at every second of its existence dependent upon God for its continued existence. As the creator, God has absolute mastery, ownership, and control over everything. Every speck, every atom, every detail, the very being and essence of everything is derived from the hand of God. You know, think about Think about how beautiful and amazing some of the sights and sounds and wonders of this universe are. Just as one example, um, astronomers, I read this this week on the internet, so it's got to be true. Astronomers have discovered the largest known diamond in our galaxy. I read about this. It's a massive lump of crystallized diamond called BPM 37093. Otherwise known as Lucy from the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I prefer Lucy as a name. Um, It's found 50 light years away in the constellation of Centaurus. Lucy is 25,000 miles across, much larger than the planet Earth. And it weighs a massive 10 billion trillion trillion carats. So anniversary gift, 25th anniversary right there for you husbands. And and something that massive, that just we can't even begin to scale that in our minds. And yet it exists at this moment by the word of God's infinite and eternal power. God is the creator. Everything that exists exists because God called it into being from nothing. Therefore, he is worthy of worship. Second, God is worthy of worship because he is the redeemer. Now, in Revelation 5, we see a shift in the vision. And the shift comes in verse 1 of chapter 5 when this scroll enters into the picture. It's a scroll that we read no one can open. Now, what is the scroll? Probably the scroll is a heavenly book containing God's plan for the destiny of the world. It's the the plan for God's unfolding renewal and restoration of all things. And John weeps, verse 4, because no one is, notice, worthy. No one is able to unseal this scroll. In other words, God's plan for justice and peace and renewal in the world will not go forward. But an an angel tells John that there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And then we meet Jesus in the vision. Best part. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but this is the best part. Verse 5. We see that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's described as a lion. And then the paradox of Christianity is at the heart of this chapter. Very next verse, verse 6, he's described as a lamb, as though standing as though it had been slain. So Jesus is seen here as a lion, a conquering, majestic, and ruling king. 
and also in the very next verse as a suffering lamb, a slain lamb, a tortured lamb. The point being, the means by which Jesus the lion conquers is by offering himself as a sacrificial, weak, and helpless lamb. Jesus, through his death, has made himself worthy to execute God's plan for the universe. And this gets us to the very heart of of it all, to the heart of Christianity, to the heart of what we call the gospel. This gets us to God's own heart. Jesus is worthy and able to make all things new. And the vision tells us how he has already done this in verses 9 through 12. He was slain, and by his blood he ransomed people for God, all different kinds of people. And he has brought them into his kingdom and made them priests. He's given them holy and divine access to God so that we can experience the life that God created for us to live. So Jesus is worthy of our worship because Jesus has accomplished redemption and renewal through his death and through his resurrection. Jesus has set God's plan of restoration into motion. Listen, here's what this is getting at, guys. God is not going to let his world forever fall into ruin. God is not going to give up on his people. God is not going to allow evil to flourish forever. God is not going to give the devil any reason to claim victory. God is going to conquer. God has conquered. God has become strong. And he became strong by Jesus becoming weak. He conquered by Jesus suffering. He achieves victory through Jesus achieving momentary defeat. So that we don't ever have to experience defeat. But in him by faith we experience victory. And so Jesus... God himself is worthy. He is worthy of your worship. He has bled for us. He has ransomed us for himself out of our bondage to the power of sin. He has made us a new family with those towards whom we were formerly hostile. He has given us access to his father as priests so that when we pray to God, we know that God hears us and longs to grant our requests according to his will. Jesus has ensured that we will reign in the kingdom of God with him forever and ever. Jesus has done this. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of you in every moment of your life, in every part of your life, fully engaging in centering your life around him, fully engaging in worshiping him. Jesus is worthy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If that's true, can it fill you with a little bit of passion, with a little bit of soul, with a little bit of vibrancy? If all of your life is supposed to be centered around the worship of Jesus, then can we this morning hear In a little portion of our life, when we sing and when we hear God's word and when we speak to one another, devote ourselves to his glory, to his worship, to his infinite worth with some fervor. I know we're Presbyterians, but let's go. Let's get after it. You non-Presbyterians, I love you. We need you. Thank you. Okay, last thing. Let's work this out in one way pastorally and then conclude. Remember, remember Revelation is not pie in the sky. All of this is intended to help a church. It's intended to help God's people, in particular, in the middle of a hostile world, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of pain, in the middle of hardship. And that's why we're taken up into the control room to see the throne. Listen, 
You need to engage in this by faith. God is not going to let things fall apart in your life for good. God is for you. God is here showing all of us that he will receive worship, he will receive glory, because his plan is going to succeed. And his plan is for you to prosper in Jesus, even though the suffering is the way oftentimes to that prospering. God wants you to know that he loves you. That's why he sent Jesus to bleed as a lamb for us to be pardoned. So be comforted, church, in the pain of your life, in the heartache of your life, in the crumbling times of your existence. Be comforted. Get up into the throne room and remember, he will not fail. He is not in control. He is in control. The things that are getting you down are not in control. They are derivative. And the only thing, the only reason they're happening to you right now is because he is allowing them to happen to you. And he knows a lot more than you know. Therefore, his allowing whatever's happening to you right now that is bad is for your ultimate good. Do you believe that? If you can believe that, then you can see, perhaps begin to see how revelation is intended to comfort God's people with the good news that Jesus has conquered. The lion and the lamb has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And right now, his spirit, the seven spirits, are present among us. The Holy Spirit is here encouraging us with this good news. So, so to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Let's pray.